So the point is, is that if life is to arise, it has to arise on one of the ones that's conducive to its development. And so Earth is just this, you know, particularly nice island in a cosmic archipelago of planets. But so, too, our own universe could be one of the good universes in a cosmic archipelago of universes that are not fit for the development of any interesting kind of complexity, let alone life, let alone us. Welcome to Steamcast, where STEM and the arts collide. I'm your host, Dan Kostelik. And together, we're going to have conversations with the brightest lights and rising stars in the fields of science, technology, engineering, the arts, and math. Exploring the world that we live in, the science that makes it all possible, and the art that makes it interesting. This is episode 13, part one of a two-part conversation with astrophysicist Dr. Alex Filipenko. He's the chair of the astronomy department at the University of California, Berkeley, and has degrees in physics and astronomy. He was also part of the 2011 Nobel Prize winning team that discovered dark energy. Our conversation today goes into what exactly is dark energy and how the universe might end. Will it be the big rip, the big crunch, or the big chill? While you have been at Berkeley, any major phenomenal moments that stand out? Well, the most, of course, was the discovery of the accelerating expansion of the universe. Uh, you know, you expected the universe to be slowing down in its expansion because galaxies are pulling on one another, just like an apple is pulled on by Earth, and so it slows down when you throw it up. So we expected to find that the universe is expanding at a progressively slower rate. But what two teams found, and I was actually privileged to be a member of both at different times, was that the universe is actually speeding up in its expansion, or at least it has been in the past 5 billion years. It was slowing down for the first 9 billion years or so. And that's a very weird effect. Uh, we attribute it to something called dark energy, a mysterious substance that has sort of an anti-gravitational effect. And it was really fantastic to be associated with this discovery because at that time, I was prim primarily a member of the so-called high redshift, the high Z supernova search team led by Brian Schmidt of the Australian National University. But my postdoctoral scholar, Adam Reese, was charged with uh, measuring the images of exploding stars that are very far away. And from their observed brightness, we could tell how far away they are, how far back in time we're looking, and we could sort of trace the expansion history of the universe. And when he, Adam, showed me the results, my jaw just dropped. I was stunned by the results, and I thought that something had gone wrong, but he checked and rechecked his measurements and his analysis, and nothing was wrong. And other people on the team checked the analysis and they couldn't find an error either. And then the other team, Saul Perlmutter's so-called supernova cosmology project was getting indications of the same result. So in the end, you know, when this was presented to the world, there were two teams that had the same result and astrophysicists worldwide had to take it seriously. And then they tried to, you know, find a flaw in our work and in our reasoning, but no flaw was found. And eventually, um, confirming observations were made of a different type. And then finally, this discovery was recognized by the Nobel Prize in Physics in 2011 to the leaders of the two teams. So it was just an amazing story. 
and one that I did not in my wildest dreams think that I would be part of when I was growing up and aspiring to become a scientist. So that's what you always wanted to be, a scientist? That's right. You know, I've always been interested in nature and how things work. And, you know, I played with chemistry sets and watched bugs and make, made electrical circuits and stuff, looked through microscopes. So I, I played with all the sciences. From age 10 through 17, my main interest was actually chemistry. And I entered college at UC Santa Barbara as a chemistry major. But astronomy was a growing interest at that time. And eventually it just kind of... Uh, you know, uh, over, well, it, it was growing in interest at a steeper slope, I guess one could stay, say, than chemistry. And so by the end of my freshman year in college, I switched to the physics major with the intention of becoming an astrophysicist. And I've never really looked back since then. But yeah, I've always been a science nut ever since, you know, kindergarten and first grade playing with magnets and wondering what this weird force is. I've always been interested in nature, but I but I only expected to contribute in an incremental way to science, not to be part of a revolutionary discovery like dark energy, which constitutes something like 70% of the matter plus energy content of the universe. Goodness gracious, that's a lot. Yeah, it really is. And we don't know what it is, you know. There's still room for young budding scientists to aspire to try to figure out exactly what the origin and nature of the dark energy really is. So if you had to make a an educated guess, a ballpark idea of what it might be, what do you think it might turn out to be? Yeah, well, I'm of two minds here. The simplest explanation is that it's just an innate internal natural energy of the vacuum. So we think of the vacuum as being zilch, nothing, mm -hmm. sheer emptiness. But according to quantum physics, the vacuum is actually teeming with activity. Particles and antiparticles are flitting into and out of existence all the time, just at microscopic levels. And physicists had thought that, in a sense, the positive and negative energies balance out to give you zero but it's not easy to actually do that in physics the natural number is to be non-zero in fact the natural number is to be a very very large number one that is completely inconsistent with the observations and would have caused the universe to expand so quickly that no galaxies would ever have formed no stars would ever have formed and we wouldn't have formed so the value of the vacuum energy must be small but not necessarily zero. If the vacuum energy is small but non-zero, it would naturally explain the observed expansion okay. and the acceleration of that expansion. However, many theorists still think that the number is probably zero because they're you know, looking for sort of a, a magical cancellation of these different energies. So if it is zero, then the other possibility is that rather than being a vacuum energy, rather this dark energy is a new type of energy, a new substance in a sense that permeates the vacuum. A little bit like I'm in a room right now that has light bulbs shining light through the room. So light permeates the room. It travels through room, the room, but it's not an intrinsic quality of the room. I could turn the lights off. 
So there's a subtle difference between a vacuum energy and a different energy that just sort of permeates all of space. And the dark energy might be that latter form uh, instead of the vacuum energy. And I, I don't, and I don't know which one it is. I mean, I, uh, some days I wake up feeling that it's the vacuum energy. Some days I wake up feeling that it's uh, a different sort of energy. Hi, listeners. We're pausing the show for just a moment to let you know that nominations for the fourth annual Project Fibonacci STEAM Leadership Conference, taking place July 28th through August 3rd, 2019, are now open. The Project Fibonacci STEAM Leadership Conference is a one-week summer event for students entering 10th grade in high school through their junior year of college where they'll get hands-on workshops with some of the brightest lights in the STEM and art fields, taking part in team-based, project-based learning with fellow scholars from all over the country. Space is limited, so educators, nominate your promising students now to be a STEAM scholar this summer and help them move forward full STEAM ahead. For more information and to sign up, go to projectfibonacci.org. And now, back to the show. So going on that, you said that for the first nine billion years or so, the expansion of the universe was actually slowing down and now it's speeding up. Is it possible then that that inherent vacuum energy or the dark energy, whatever is the best descriptor for it, is something relatively new to the universe? Yes, that's right. Um, The universe slowed down for the first nine billion years because galaxies were pretty close together when the universe was smaller and denser and so they gravitationally pulled on each other more than they do now so gravity was stronger in a sense in the past because the galaxies were closer together okay on the other hand this uh this anti-gravity this dark energy had a cumulative effect that was weaker back then because if it's a property of space or even just some energy that permeates space, the more space you have, the greater is the cumulative effect. So back when galaxies were close to one another, there wasn't that much space. And so the total effect of this repulsive dark energy was relatively small. Whereas as the universe grew in size and the galaxies became progressively farther apart from one another, the total amount of volume that had this dark energy was greater. And so its overall effect was greater. So eventually repulsion started dominating over attraction because attraction was getting weaker with time, whereas repulsion was becoming progressively stronger with time. And so about 5 billion years ago, the repulsion came to dominate over the attraction and the universe started accelerating rather than decelerating. So it's just simple inertia at this point. Well, in a sense, it's inertia. Uh, You can think of the the Big Bang as causing all the matter to just start flying out. And then the inertia would just make it keep going at a constant speed. Now, in addition to the inertia, of course, you've got attractive gravity trying to slow down the galaxies, just again, like the ball that you throw upward, Mm -hmm. versus the dark energy that's trying to speed the stuff up. And so it's the competing effect of the repulsive dark energy trying to speed things up and then the visible and dark matter, the normal gravity trying to slow things down. It's kind of a tug of war. And in the past five billion years, the repulsion has been winning that tug of war, whereas in the first nine billion years, the attraction was winning the tug of war. So at what point will all the galaxies and all the stars follow the repulsion to the point that we can't see each other anymore. 
Yeah, that's an interesting question. Um, because if the dark energy is a constant density, so in other words, the amount per unit volume remains the same, and only the volume between galaxies increases, well then galaxies like our Milky Way galaxy will never fly apart because the vacuum volume density right now is not great enough to spread our galaxy apart. And so if the vacuum density isn't growing, then it will never be strong enough to spread our Milky Way galaxy apart, even though other galaxies that are, say, 10 or more million light years away are moving apart. If the dark energy is a vacuum energy and doesn't get stronger, then other galaxies will eventually be invisible in a few tens of billions of years. But stars in our own galaxy will remain relatively nearby. Okay. On the other hand, it's possible that this energy is of a type whose volume density increases with time. This would be a weird sort of phantom energy that's actually getting stronger per unit volume. In that case, galaxies would eventually have enough of this stuff that they would fly apart, and then planetary systems would fly apart, and then planets and stars would get ripped apart, and then people would get ripped apart, and even the atoms of which people are made would eventually get bit, ripped apart in what is called the big rip. But that's only if you have this very weird kind of phantom energy whose effect gets stronger with time per unit volume. And right now I would say that we don't have strong evidence that the dark energy is of that type, but we have not yet ruled it out either. All right, so in that case, out of, um, let's say, three possibilities for going to the end of time, and we're getting a little maudlin here maybe, but it's science, it's scientific maudlin, so I, I will allow it. What do you think right now it is, based on evidence that we have, the numbers, observable phenomena, is the most likely? The big rip, as you just called it, the big crunch, which is what some people call when everything comes rushing back together, or just an inevitable slow heat death where everything cools down to close to absolute zero. Yeah, the big chill, you could the call big, that. The big right? chill. Yeah, all right. <laughs> yeah, chill. that's right. Right, yeah. So I, I don't think the big rip is going to happen because I don't think there's much evidence for a dark energy that's actually getting stronger with time. And that particular type of dark energy has some other not very attractive aspects to it. Not that we can rule it out completely um, through that kind of argument, but uh, it would be a type of energy that in a sense doesn't conserve energy, which definitely makes physicists worry. So I don't think the big rip will happen. So then it's sort of a toss-up between the big chill and the big crunch. The big crunch could still occur despite the current acceleration, and that's because since we don't know what the dark energy is, it's conceivable that its gravitational sign will change in the future from the current repulsion to eventual attraction. So if that's the case, and if there's enough of it, then we'll have a big crunch eventually, a very, very long time from now, many tens of billions of years from now. On the other hand, if the dark energy is either a constant energy density, the so-called Einsteinian cosmological constant, 
or if it's not the cosmological constant, but still something that remains gravitationally repulsive, then we'll get the big chill. And right now, you know, I just don't know which one it'll be. I guess my slight preference is that it's a vacuum energy because it's just an energy with which our universe was born. And in that case, its effect will stay constant per unit volume. And as the volume grows, the acceleration will exponentiate eventually and we'll get a big chill. But, you know, it's conceivable that the dark energy will change sign and become gravitationally attractive and eventually cause the big crunch. Although my slight preference right now is with the big chill. When you say your slight preferences for the big chill, is that just uh, a preference of if you were somehow here in 20 billion years, that's how you'd want to go? Or <laughs> no, no, it's it's more of a, it's more of what I think the dark energy is. I I think it's a, a vacuum energy. I think it's just one of these things that the universe was born with uh, that was favorable to our existence, and other universes were born with very much bigger vacuum energies that didn't allow complexity to arise and weren't conducive to the eventual development of life. I'm quite a, a firm advocate for what's called the multiverse hypothesis, where you have many, many universes and only some of them have the conditions that are conducive to the development of complexity. And by that, I mean, for example, a rich periodic table of the elements uh, which can then lead to things like long chains of carbon atoms attached to hydrogen and oxygen and nitrogen, making amino acids and proteins and things like that. So it turns out that if you change some of the seemingly boring aspects of our universe, like the relative masses of the neutron and proton, you could say, yawn, tell me something interesting. But I'm telling you, you know, if you change the, change the ratio of the neutron to the proton mass ever so slightly and go through the equations and you find out that you have a, a situation where, for example, only helium is possible, uh, and change a few other things, and only hydrogen might be possible, or only iron might be possible. So those would be pretty boring periodic tables and ones that do not lead to the development of complex molecules and other such structures. Well, there are many such numbers in the universe, seemingly arbitrary numbers, physical constants and various ratios and strengths of forces, for which physicists right now have no good explanation. And they might just be random numbers. They might be just things that occur, uh, and there's no particularly good reason why they occur. A little bit like planets come in many sizes and many distances from stars, having, you know, different temperatures and different amounts of atmosphere and so on. And ancient Greek philosophers could have tried to answer the question, oh, why is Earth so special? What is the fundamental reason that Earth is so special? till they were blue in the face. And, and the point is, is that it's not special for any reason. It's part of an ensemble of many planets orbiting our sun and orbiting other stars as well. And they have many different masses and temperatures and chemical compositions. And most are too cold or too hot, or they don't have an atmosphere or whatever. So the point is, is that if life is to arise, it has to arise on one of the ones that's conducive to its development. And so Earth is just this, you know, particularly nice island in a cosmic archipelago of planets. 
but so too our own universe could be one of the good universes in a cosmic archipelago of universes that are not fit for the development of any interesting kind of complexity, let alone life, let alone us. And so the vacuum energy could be just one of those numbers where if it were different, we wouldn't be here. And it is different in other universes, but guess what? We don't live in those universes. Yeah. And so uh, I kind of like that argument that the dark energy is just one of these numbers that the universe has and it's a favorable number for us, but it could have been just about anything. That wraps up today's conversation on Steamcast. I'd like to thank Dr. Alex Filipenko for being this week's guest. Please come back next week for part two of our conversation. Steamcast is a production of the Project Fibonacci Foundation, a 501c3 nonprofit educational organization whose mission is to introduce our youth to a culture of interdisciplinary STEAM learning teaching them to become creative, independent leaders of community resurgence. You can learn more by going to projectfibonacci.org. Steamcast was written, produced, and hosted by me, Dan Kostelik. You can follow me on Twitter at Dan Kostelik. Technical support is by Andrew Berger. The music in the show is by The Live and Breathe from the album Reet. You can find it on iTunes or wherever you listen to music. Please subscribe and rate the show five stars on Apple Podcasts, Google Play Music, Stitcher, Spotify, or the podcatcher of your choice. And also follow us on Twitter and Facebook. On Facebook, we can be found at facebook.com slash Project Fibonacci. And on Twitter, we are at Pro Fibonacci. That's P-R-O-F-I-B-O-N-A-C-C-I. Thanks for listening. Keep moving forward. Full steam ahead.